Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome to another hour dedicated to inquiry, reflection, questions, possibilities, and more. All in our effort to understand exactly what enlightenment means and what it is to be enlightened. Indeed, an hour devoted to learning something more about ourselves, an hour designed to help us understand the world we live in and enable us to integrate this knowledge in practical ways, recognizing that in the process, well, we might just challenge some of those old ideas about the world we live in and the people we have become. For this is an hour where we strive to evaluate knowing as inseparable from the total experience of reality. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right. Now, each week I read a few of your letters as our way of respecting the importance you play in our show. Last week, our show was all about solfeggio, or the forgotten frequencies used in ancient Gregorian chants, such as the great hymn to John the Baptist. Our guest was Dr. Leonard Horowitz, and many of you wrote asking us to bring him back, and so we shall. Eleven wrote, Evelyn wrote, <laughs> thanks so much for your show on solfeggio. I have been working with sound, color, and light and healing for many years. Thanks for bringing this to the Hay House audience. You are our representative on the cutting edge of thought. Well, thank you, Dr. Evelyn Weissman. I sincerely appreciate your trust. Elaine wrote, Eldon, the show yesterday was just amazing. I will be listening to the archive again. Thank you for bringing us into some knowledge that truly fortifies the soul. Wendy wrote, nice program on the solfeggio tones. I wrote to you a while back on Facebook about this subject, and so thank you for interviewing Dr. Horowitz. I hope that soon you can allow more airtime to discuss this amazing rediscovery and the healing capabilities of what I consider a sacred scale. Good work, Eldon, as usual, from a real fan. Well, thank you, Wendy, and of course I remember because your note was part of what prompted the show in the first place. I appreciate your letters and suggestions, and I try to follow up when a suggestion is made. And while I'm on the subject of that follow-up, we will schedule another hour with Dr. Horowitz. I've already discussed this with him. Now it's just a matter of getting our schedules together. Andre wrote, what a great show. Truly enlightening. I'm so happy to get this knowledge. Totally shifts my understanding of biology. Our DNA is a sacred spiral. Wow. Robin wrote, love the synchronicity, by the way. I was literally, literally wondering what you thought about Leonard Horowitz. And then I saw the Facebook post just minutes before your show started, and I caught it just in time. Shelley wrote, loved your show on Solfeggio. Very interesting, and I have a chronic Lyme, which is also part of the biowarfare agents your guest spoke of. Thank you for your great work. Now, with a dissenting view, Richard wrote, Eldon, Mr. Horowitz does not sit well with me. I found many weird notations on the Internet. I will attach one. My narcissist meter is wagging more than a bit. Okay, Richard. <clears throat> what Richard attached, attacked Horowitz and called him, quote, a messianic megalomaniac, among other things. Now, I answered Richard this way. I'm aware of this, Richard, at more. Horowitz defends himself and argues this, and I quote from a private email, quote, Like I stated on the show, there has been a concerted effort by the NSA, CIA, FBI, gang stalkers that were once called Pro during Hoover's day 
to degrade my work and the revelations of what 528 is and does. These agent provocateurs uh, infiltrate every activist community, including holistic health and the New Age community, to produce leaders as a form of controlled opposition. I am certain about this, having worked for the past two years exposing these devil doers. Many of them are very bright and some are really stupid, but many are good communicators and are persuasive, but I seriously question their integrity. Close quote. There it is. The jury is up to you to decide. I bring you both sides. That's why we call it provocative enlightenment. Roxana wrote, I listen over and over to your past shows while I am working. You cannot imagine how much I enjoy listening to all of your interviews. I have learned so much, and I have become a better person. Thank you. Thank you for being who you are and sharing all of your knowledge with us. Well, thank you very much, Roxana. Kathy wrote, I love your CDs. I bought about seven of them in December, and they definitely have helped me. Thank you. Kevin commented, Tuesday should be Provocative Enlightenment Day at Hay House. <laughs> Ariel wrote, I love, 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 love your show. You're my favorite Hay House radio host. Well, I just love, 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 love that comment. How about you, Rev? I love it, too. Okay, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today. But I do invite you to opine by sending your comments and suggestions to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com or by joining me on Facebook. You can also just leave remarks on my website. I do try to read all of your letters, obviously. We can't get them all on the air, but they do impact our programming. I highly value your input, and I do encourage you to please provide your feedback. And once again, thank you for your continued support. Now to today's show, the extraordinary healing power of ordinary things, with one of my favorite people as a guest. Questions. Can words heal? Is there any such thing as mental inoculations? Can the power of of the mind actually reverse disease? You know, for me, these these three questions belong in another age, an age when mechanics ruled our understanding of the body. Like the dark ages of the past, say the bloodletting from the scalp symbolized in today's barber pole, the strictly mechanical view of the human body and wellness is that archaic. I can remember mentioning to a friend of mine in a hospital in Utah many years ago, some research I was doing in the area of psychoneuroimmunology, and my friend, a healthcare professional, first asked me what I meant, and then scoffed at the notion that the mind could heal matters such as cancer. Eventually, I conducted a study where the only intervention employed was a cognitive tool designed to alter the expectation, the stream of consciousness, the belief, if you will, of the patient regarding their disease. The data was impressive. Published in a peer-reviewed journal, essentially findings were this. Every single patient that utilized the program, an intertalk program, who believed the mind had a role in wellness and whose physician shared that view was in complete remission three years later. Contrast that with this. Every single patient whose physician believed that the mind had no role in wellness was deceased. Now, at the time, I was somewhat puzzled about the latter finding. However, since then, we have research employing fMRI where researchers have actually demonstrated that the area of the brain responsible for discrimination, decision-making, literally shuts down in the presence of an authority. You've heard me speak of this before. 
But let me quote from new scientists reporting on this work. Quote, parts of the prefrontal and anterior cingulate cortices, which play key roles in vigilance and skepticism when judging the truth and importance of what people say, were deactivated when the subjects listened to a supposed healer. In my mind, the words of the physician generated the expectation factor that led to the patient's death. Perhaps that's harsh. In my new book, I believe, when what you believe matters to be released by Hay House in February of next year, the power of the mind in wellness, its role with placebos, hysterical illness, even life expectancy is reviewed. The bottom line, in my opinion, guard carefully what you believe, for it may bite you in the derriere one day if you don't. Our guest today knows far better than most just how powerful your thoughts, your beliefs, your expectations, your action, and so forth can be with respect to your wellness. I have enjoyed his books and works for years. He is one of the true pioneers in wellness, and he has been featured on Oprah as well as making numerous major television appearances, such as with Tom Brokaw and Katie Couric. He is a New York Times bestselling author, and his books... Healing Words, and the Extraordinary Healing Power of Ordinary Things, the subject of today's show, are two books I cannot encourage you enough to get, to read, and to reread. I'm speaking, of course, of Dr. Larry Dossie. He has been with us before, so he needs little introduction. However, that said, Dr. Dossie, MD, is the former Chief of Staff at Medical City Dallas Hospital and co-chair of the Panel of Mind-Body Interventions, National Center for Complementary and Alternative Medicine, National Institutes of Health. He is the author of 10 books and numerous articles. As far as I'm concerned, Dr. Dossie's contribution to mind-body wellness cannot be overstated. So let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Dr. Larry Dossie. Ellen, it's just great to be back with you again. Thanks for the uh, re-invitation. Oh, it's indeed our pleasure and, and our honor to have you with us. Thank Let, you. Let's begin, if we can, by what I consider to be the significant matter in healthcare, and that's the role of spirituality. Do you feel there is a need for spirituality in healthcare, and if so, why? Uh, the short answer is absolutely. Uh, you know, thirty years ago, this would have been considered a uh, an outrageous point of view, uh, a point of view that you would expect ministers and priests and rabbis to adopt, but it would hardly be appropriate for a scientifically oriented healthcare professional to uh, come down in favor of spirituality. But, but I think the uh, I think the verdict is in. Uh, we have over 1,200 studies now that have been published in peer-reviewed literature showing that people who follow some sort of spiritual path in their life uh, uh, simply live longer uh, than people who do not, and they're healthier in the process. They have a lower instance of all the major diseases of our day, including heart disease and cancer. Uh, I'm not saying uh, that if you follow a spiritual path, that's going to guarantee that you're going to have smooth sailing with your health, but I'll tell you this. Statistically, you're going to be ahead of the game. Uh, You're going to be likelier to live a long, healthy life if you follow seriously and sincerely some spiritual path in your life. And, And I have to say right at the start that The data suggests it doesn't really matter greatly which one you pick, but this issue of getting meaning into our life and purpose and a sense of direction and a connection not with just uh, other people uh, out there uh, in a larger global sense, but also a connection with the transcendent or the divine, 
has some major, major uh, factor in our health and our longevity. I'm talking about data here. I'm not talking about anecdotes or people's stories, although that's part of the equation, too. I'm talking about studies that have been done in clinics and hospitals and in major teaching institutions around the country for the last 20 years, Eldon. And I love to hear that, and, and, and I know, of course, what you were going to say, and I'm aware of that data, but you know there's very few people that have your courage, uh, given your credentials, your position, to step forward and, and, and you know, just get it said the way it really is. <laughs> uh, I, I have to admire you for that. Every, everybody has to admire you for that. Well, I, you know, I've tried it the other way. I, you know, when I, I've, over the past few years, I've been invited to most of the major medical schools around the country to talk about this issue. And uh, I, I must say, 20 years ago, I sort of tried to sanitize my talks about this and not come down too strongly, uh, sort of leave it out, out into a neutral uh, and uh, open view where people could pick and choose uh, about which way they wanted to jump on these issues. Uh, I don't think that's justified anymore. The data is just simply too strong. Uh, it's There's an avalanche of it. Uh, it's becoming more and more abundant as time goes on. And I don't think we're justified any longer, Ellen, in self-peddling this uh, spirituality connection to our health. Uh, if we start... Uh, uh, omitting this uh, area of science, what what other areas of science are going to be, we're going to toss out? Uh, I think one of our commitments as scientists is to follow the data wherever it leads, uh, and to put our pet theories about how the world ought to operate aside and go with the data. So that's what I'm trying to do. I love it. I love it. Okay, now you heard the setup piece. How significant is the role of the expectation and belief, in your view, with respect to both wellness and healing? Well, I think it's absolutely crucial. Uh, I'll just give you uh, a hint of what the, the information, the data looks like in this field. Uh, about 30 years ago, people started wondering how you could predict how long people are going to live. Uh, what are the factors you'd want to look at? And back then, we all you know, keyed on genetics and what physical examinations uh, showed in any given individual. Well, what, uh, what are all the tests show, blood tests, scans, and all this sort of thing? And then you would crunch those numbers as a doctor and predict for a patient how long he or she was going to be alive. Uh, there have been now around 30 major studies uh, taking in tens of thousands of individuals that show that the best way to predict how long somebody's going to live is none of that stuff, which I just mentioned. Uh, the best predictor is the answer that people give to a simple question, what do you think about your health? And if people gave a negative, highly negative answer about what they thought about their health status, regardless of what the, the objective data showed, they had a much increased risk of dying over the next 10 years than people who had an optimistic view of their health. This view of what you think, what you believe, what you foresee, uh, about your future health status is absolutely crucial. It's one of the most important predictors of longevity and health status that has ever been discovered. So when we talk about the power of belief, uh, we're not talking about new age mumbo-jumbo. We're talking about studies that have accumulated over the past three decades. So if we toss out the role of belief, uh, we're doing an injustice to our patients. We're becoming traitors to scientific evidence, 
And we have to make uh, a place in our uh, models of health and longevity that include belief. And I know you've come down really hard and decisive on this issue of belief because I've seen the manuscript of your next book, which I think is superb. So I want to congratulate you, too, on taking a stand for this issue of belief, and it's supported by good data. We're just not making this up. Thank you very much. Now, you know, for the listening audience, your book, Healing Words, which is a New York Times bestseller, if you have not read that book, I'm going to suggest to you that you get it today because you're going to want to read it. But in your book, Healing Words, Dr. Dossi, you state that the most effective psychological coping strategy in an acute phase of a heart attack, and you emphasize after, you know, after the patient is in a coronary care unit, is denial. <laughs> now, now, on the face of that, yeah. you know, uh, th- that may sound a little irresponsible. Explain that for our audience, will you please? Well, sure. Uh, what I'm talking about in that situation is evidence uh, during the really acute uh, phase of uh, a heart attack. And uh, there are good studies that show that if people uh, manage to get into the coronary care unit, and, and you know as well as I do that many don't because uh, denial, you know, when you have your first bout of chest pain, is not a very good uh, thing, uh, right. uh, way to go. You need to call 911 if you're having a heart attack and take active measures. But after you get uh, admitted to the coronary care unit and all hooked up and monitored and all this sort of thing, and you're in a safe uh, safe zone where you have skilled nurses and physicians caring for you, there's something that uh, clicks in in the organism and in, 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 uh, human beings uh, that favors denial in those uh, 24, 48, 72 first hours following a heart attack. It's like uh, the body goes on automatic, uh, and its uh, automatic uh, survival physiological mechanisms kick in, and that's not uh, the place for uh, a serious, uh, open-minded appraisal of what's going on. As a matter of fact, if you adopt that in the first uh, few hours following a heart attack, you may get terrified, scared, and think you're going to die, and that churns out cortisol and adrenaline, and it's not the, the best thing to happen in that acute phase. But right. uh, after about 72 hours or so, denial ceases to pay off any benefits, and uh, that's when we need to take uh, realistic appraisals of what what's going on uh, okay now now here's the setup i mean that was a bit of a setup question because because here we go i i i mean i love what you're saying and it, and it to- makes total sense that you know the fear is just going to exacerbate the situation okay yeah but then the physician the cardiac care professionals uh-huh should are they in a place where they should be assisting in the denial as opposed to actually delivering honest appraisals about what's going on during that 24 to 72 hours i mean have we created kind of a catch 22 where to be the responsible physician that's totally aware of all these things you have to be very careful about what you say and you may even have to you know stretch the truth a little for your patient's best, uh, you know, well-being? Well, I think that the key word here that means most to me uh, in taking care of those patients, and uh, I I spent most of my adult life taking care of really sick people, including cardiac patients in coronary care units after heart attack. I think the key word is compassion. Uh, What a physician ought to do is 
anything that will help that patient uh, uh, live and uh, thrive. And it's not coming in with the gr- with the grisly description of uh, survival statistics and all of this sort of thing. It has to do with offering assurances that I am your physician and I will do anything I can uh, to help you through this. And I want you to know that I'll be by your side and we will get through this together. Uh, that's the message that uh, should be delivered, not a rehearsal of uh, uh, lethal death statistics following first MI or second MI and that sort of thing. You can scare people to death to death in those sorts of situations, literally, by an act of rehearsal. Could, yeah. If we could just get your message in the hands of all physicians, you know, I mean, how, I, I mean, to hear what you say, I think, you know, I had triple bypass surgery about five years ago, and and uh, no warning, no anything about it. But and 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 you know they were professional. I'm not not I'm not saying that you know, the healthcare professionals weren't. I knew most of them. I had relationships. But it was it was rather cold. And and when I hear what you say, you know, I'm going to be there with you. I'm your doctor. I mean, the compassion expression. I just think how much how much warmer that would would have been as opposed to that cold environment, you know, that exactly. the patient goes through. Well, thank God. You mentioned, got, go ahead. Well, I thank God we've got something else besides doctors to rely on in that situation, and that's nurses. Uh, yes. And nurses, uh, by virtue of disposition and personality and, and training, uh, usually are attracted to their profession because they are much more generous with compassion and love and emotional support in those sorts of situations. And so, well, and I, I, yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, do you think, I mean, there I think also enters the value or a large part of the value of spirituality in your life. It's, it's kind of a turning over and a trusting, uh, you know, oh, blanket. That, I, go ahead. I, yeah, I really believe that. Uh, you know, I uh, I had an interesting experience four years ago. I uh, I was uh, thrown from a, a horse up in the mountains in uh, western Wyoming, up in wilderness area. And uh, long story short, I, I I broke my back, and I wound up in wow. uh, intensive uh, care unit uh, in a hospital in Montana. And uh, when I was in the emergency room, uh, getting you know MRI scanned and all of that, I I was just in horrible pain, and. Uh, uh, while I was in the emergency room, there were three cowboys that came in with uh, injuries from horses also. And so I, I was lying there, you know, halfway sedated with morphine, but yet really in tremendous pain. And the nurse, the head nurse of the emergency room, came over and whispered in my ear. She said, uh, the horses are winning. <laughs> <laughs> Provocative Enlightenment on Hay House Radio. We're discussing 
the extraordinary healing power of ordinary things with Dr. Larry Dossey. Be sure to catch the film in the chat room featuring Dr. Dossey during the break. Stay with us. Uh, You won't want to miss what's coming up in the next half hour. We'll be right back after these words from some of our friends. Close your eyes. Imagine your goals and dreams. What's preventing you from accomplishing them? Most often, we are our own worst enemies. I can't. I'm not good enough. It's time to reprogram that inner dialogue. Replace all those negative self-images with... I'm good. I am powerful. I can do anything. Eldon Taylor's InnerTalk patented subliminal technology does just that. Researched at numerous universities such as Stanford and by governments such as Mexico and Germany, InnerTalk has repeatedly been proven effective at changing your self-talk. Stop imagining your goals and make them a reality today. Visit www.innertalk.com. That's I-N-N-E-R-T-A-L-K. Intertalk.com. Do you feel like you've become lost in a funhouse? Only seeing the reflection of yourself, past, future, and present, but unable to find the real you? I invite you to step through the doorway and onto the path leading to understanding of your mind, your choices, and the influences that surround you. Read Elton Taylor's New York Times best-selling book, Choices and Illusions. Now expanded, updated, and revised, it will provide you with real-life examples of how you can break free from your current perceptions and begin your journey to how high is up. Get your copy today from all bookstores or online from Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're discussing the extraordinary healing power of ordinary things. Uh, by and with its author, Dr. Larry Dossie. But before we get back to today's show, I want to invite you to join me on Facebook. I regularly post such things as what's happening on our radio show, where I'm speaking, the latest in research, breakthroughs, links to my blogs, and so forth. So please do join me on Facebook. Now, if you like our show, I'd also appreciate you spreading the word. One more item of business. I'll be speaking in Pasadena at the I Can Do It conference next month, and I would love to meet all of you. So please check out the details on hayhouse.com, and if you can, plan to attend. All right, let's get back to the show. Uh, Before the break, you were discussing, Dr. Dossi, um, that innate intelligence, that instinct, I guess, of some healthcare providers, the nurse who could say, who did say to you, uh, the horses are winning and change the entire environment. Do you, do you find that to be something common? I think it's becoming more common. Uh, when I was in medical school, physicians were taught to just uh, be straight out uh, objective, you know, keep the emotions out of it, uh, just uh, confront patients with facts. And although there are some people who respond to that, uh, that's just a very ham-fisted, heavy-handed approach. It just doesn't work with a lot of people. You know, one of the things that I've uh, followed is the trend uh, currently for nurse coaching. 
in which nurses uh, privately take on patients and coach them through their illness, help them uh, uh, access information that they otherwise would not know anything about. And uh, uh, this is where I I think uh, good medicine is headed. Uh, And I just want to tip my hat to nurses because I think they're in the forefront of this. Uh, I'll give you an example. My wife and I, my wife Barbara, is uh, heads up an international nurse coaches uh, training program. And uh, uh, recently we had a friend who lived out of state, and uh, he was a very brilliant, hard-driven, uh, stressed-out computer guy. And he came down with a cardiomyopathy in which the heart muscle just doesn't work very well. And in this particular case, the cause of this was not known. Well, he went to his physician, and his physician, uh, you know, rehearsed the statistics, told him he would have a 50% of being dead and 50% chance of being dead within two years. And he went away, and he got uh, clinically worse. Uh, he was depressed. He didn't know what to do. And the doctor was absolutely no help to this man. So we put him in touch with uh, a nurse coach in his part of the country, and she guided him uh, back to the Internet, uh, uh, revealed to him uh, in language he could understand uh, a literature which showed uh, patients who had taken measures to survive and thrive and get over their cardiomyopathy. This kind of information is not known in textbooks uh, widely. And so this woman was able, through a compassionate, alternate uh, counseling type of route, to totally change this man's uh, clinical course around. She taught him the rudiments of stress management, uh, he wound up uh, leaving his stressed-out job and found something uh, much more healthful and productive and rewarding financially even. In other words, she, saw, she taught him a new way to approach his life. This is something that doctors with, you know, five to seven minutes of interaction and, uh, with patients in HMO environments these days, they just simply don't have time to do. And also, Eldon, they aren't trained to do it. They just simply uh, largely do not have the skills that nurse coaches and other types of people can bring to bear in these kinds of situations. Right. I, I think you call that words that maim in your wonderful book, Healing Words. Uh, and, and you know, indeed, uh, you, you know, a lot of people aren't aware that physicians for years have had to insure for such things as iatrogenic effects right. uh, during surgery. But, but, you know, we're becoming more and more aware, I think, today, and that's the point that you're making, that, it isn't just when you're completely anesthetized and somebody says something like, well, that fat one isn't going to, you know, do well, yeah. that it might influence you. It, it can be just something as simple as what you said. Well, the statistics are, you know, in five years you'll be dead or something like that. You, you, I guess where I'm going to go now is it, I, I could spend hours talking to you, Dr. Dossie, but uh, – <laughs> You know, I, tell us how you became interested, because I love your new book, how you became interested in ordinary things that have healing power. Well, as often is the case, uh, when doctors make these kinds of turnarounds, uh, this had to do with personal illness. Uh, I, I had a chronic medical condition that almost uh, derailed my career as a doctor before it even got started. From grade school onward, I had uh, what is called classical migraine headache, uh, which uh, involved incapacitating headache, nausea, vomiting. But the worst thing was partial, episodes of partial blindness. Uh, this got worse with the stress of college. It got much worse with the stress of medical school. 
It was so bad I actually tried to drop out of medical school because I figured it was just a matter of time until I would have one of these episodes of blindness and injure or perhaps uh, kill a patient in a critical situation. Uh, my mentor in medical school wouldn't let me do it. Uh, he he said, this always gets better as you get older. Well, for me, it got worse. And so by the time I finished my internal medicine training, I was really desperate. Uh, nothing worked conventionally. And then, uh, Elena, you probably remember this, in the early 70s, uh, biofeedback just sort of exploded on the national scene. Right. And it was found out quite by accident that people who had migraine, who learned to relax in these biofeedback uh, methodologies, uh, experienced an improvement uh, of migraine. Uh, I was so desperate, I chased all over the country learning how to do this, and it was a miracle. Uh, almost uh, all of the symptoms went away. Uh, it was it was something so dramatic, so such a strong evidence of a mind-body belief kind of connection. It changed my life. Uh, I became a biofeedback certified therapist. I put in a laboratory, taught my internal medicine patients how to do this stuff. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, and so this was, you know, you don't walk away from those kinds of personal experiences easily. Uh, and it, it really made a difference in how I approached uh, healing and medicine in general. Uh, from med- from biofeedback, it was a short step toward taking up meditation. Uh, this uh, segued uh, into uh, a larger concern for the evidence for spiritual uh, factors in health. And so that's sort of a short version of how I got here. <laughs> that's really interesting. You know, when it burst onto the field, as you say, in the 70s, I was still running lie detection tests, and so biofeedback to me made just perfect sense. You know, and, and Thomas Bozinski and I did a little stuff together, and, you know, it, hey. But I had no idea that you had done that. That's incredible. Your book now, and, and I, have to, I have to admit this. I, I, I really like your book. But you have some really funky titles, and you know you have some funky chapter titles. Yeah. <laughs> Dirt, Bugs, Tears, Miracles, those are all different Titles. So, okay, where do you want to start? Tell us, you uh, know, why do you do a chapter on dirt? Yeah, let's get dirty here. I, uh, I'm fascinated by the recent evidence that uh, suggests that we can uh, be too clean. Uh, I really mean this literally. There's overwhelming data now that shows that uh, kids who are raised in in environments that are not uh, squeaky clean. I'm talking about kids growing up in rural environments, kids who grow up on farms, uh, and in uh, unhygienic urban environments even. These kids later in life have a much lower incidence of asthma, a much lower incidence of uh, eczema and allergies. And the thinking has uh, uh, produced something that's called the hygiene hypothesis. And in a nutshell, it says that if kids are exposed to various sorts of fungi and bacteria and viruses when they're growing up, it's a stimulus to their immune system to develop uh, resistance to these things. And so they come out uh, of adolescence with a much stronger immune system than kids who are raised in environments where their parents always try to protect them from getting dirty and keep them squeaky clean all the time. Uh, This is a very uh, strongly supported uh, piece of work, uh, not just in the United States, but in England and and Western Europe in general. 
And so the lesson, I think, uh, has a lot to do with uh, how we uh, take care of our kids growing up. It, it, it's a good thing for them to get dirty. Uh, it's a good thing for them, for example, to play in a sandbox or make mud pies or uh, things that kids often don't do anymore. Uh, my favorite uh, uh, so-called therapy along these lines is to teach kids how to play in a vegetable garden and help their parents grow flowers or food or something of that sort. But the whole idea that the better off, the cleaner we are, the better off we're going to be throughout life is just an idea that doesn't work. So Makes that's, sense uh, to that's, me. That's my defense for dirt, Ellen. <laughs> okay, that's great. Do you think fear has any factor in there? I mean, I, I, I see so much of you know mothers today, well, parents today, not just mothers, um, telling their children, "Be sure you wash your hands. Be sure you do this. Be sure you do that." That they almost you know generate a certain paranoia. Do you, I mean? Uh, and then the news comes along, and they tell us that that shopping cart that we put our hands on when we go to the grocery store is the dirtiest thing on the planet. Do you think fear has a role in that? Oh, I think it certainly uh, certainly does. Everything we know uh, suggests that anxiety and tension and stress uh, compromises the immune system, and you can certainly put people in a state of fear about uh, dirt and hygiene and so on. You know, uh, if you walk down the aisles of the supermarket uh, you mentioned, uh, so many of the products now are just laced with antibiotics from from uh, uh, soaps and detergents to toothpaste and you name it. We're just getting dosed with uh, microscopic uh, low-level doses of antibiotics in ways that we just simply uh, commonly aren't aware of. Well, the best way to stimulate uh, uh, resistant bacteria uh, is just to comp- uh, continually expose them to low levels of antibiotics like we do. Uh, this needs to be rethought, and I think it's our horror of uh, dirtiness and filth that feeds this uh, this uh, uh, desire to protect our kids from dirty environments and all that sort of thing. We need to turn them loose, for God's sake. Encourage them to go out and get dirty, playing in a park or, you know, frolicking with pets uh, and so on. Uh, but this horror, this fear, I, I, I think you're right on target. It uh, can make us uh, less healthy instead of healthier, as most parents uh, uh, need to understand. All right. Now, I've got a neighbor that teaches survival techniques. And so we're going to have to go to bugs in a minute because that's one of the favorite things he likes to do. But we have some very patient callers that uh, they've got questions for you, Dr. Dossie, and I would just dominate you, but let's get a caller or two in here, and and then we'll come back to bugs, all right? Yeah. On line one, we have Madeline from Chicago. Madeline, welcome to Provocative Enlightenment. You're on the air with Dr. David Do- Dr. Larry Dossie. Thank you. How can we help you? Thank you for your time. Thank you for taking my call. Um my husband and I have both recently been diagnosed with back issues. I have, uh, according to the MRI that we both had taken, uh, me with uh, three herniated discs and him with a slip disc. Um, I'm reading now, and I've always believed in the mind-body connection. I'm getting better because I always, when I get my pain, I think about why I'm getting that pain, and I sort of like, I don't know, for lack of a better way of saying it, wish it away. Because I, for me, it's, it's, it's um, anxiety that makes it worse. For my husband, um, he doesn't believe in that mind-body connection. He believes, 
you just go to the doctor and you take a pill or you get surgery and then it goes away. But here's the turning point. He went to the doctor. Doctor told him uh, he needed surgery. And the surgery, after we came home, looked it up and researched it and talked to a million people that we knew of, um, surgery is not an option for us and for me and for him. But he can't seem, he can't seem to click into that mind-body connection. It's almost like voodoo, a little voodoo for him. I don't know how to help him. To I really believe that it's uh, our emotions and anger have a lot to do with, repressed emotions and anger have a lot to do with how pain manifests itself. Um, I don't know how to help him, and he doesn't want surgery. We don't, and that surgery that they're recommending is a very scary type of surgery. And we're going well, around in circles, and he's getting worse. <laughs> I don't know what Dr. Dossie's going to tell you, but the first thing I would suggest is you get these two books by Dr. Dossie, and you give them to him, especially healing words. Uh, mm-hmm. Dr. Dossie, what, what what would you say? Uh, what would you suggest? Well, it's hazardous for me to... Uh make any specific recommendations not every every ruptured disc and every herniated disc is different and uh, it would be reckless for me to uh, make any across the board absolute statements but i will say this i've never seen a case of herniated disc pain that uh, was not worsened by stress and anxiety and tension uh i i think it's common sense that stress management and relaxation skills uh in this uh, particular situation can help if your husband is absolutely close to that, uh, I think that he is. We have to honor what people want to do and try to meet them where they are. I think it's a shame that he doesn't have a supportive physician who might be willing to send him to a biofeedback clinic to learn how to totally relax his body and to deal with pain through imagery and visualization, as you seem willing to do. Uh, acupuncture can also help. But, you know, we can't make people do things. Uh, we have to meet them where they are, as I say. And I think gentle persuasion instead of uh, dictating is the way to go with somebody like your uh, your husband. Uh, I've written widely about uh, this sort of thing in, in my books, and, uh, you know, I, and so has Eldon and many other folks. And there's a lot of literature which you might be just sort of uh, able to uh, uh, gently slip to your husband and suggest that he take a look at it. But to try to approach disc disease totally from a surgical approach without using the other uh, mind-related options, I, I think is fighting the battle with one hand tied behind your back. Okay. I hope that helps, Madeline. Thanks for calling. Thank you. Let's go to line two. We have Laurie in Louisiana, and I think she is really impressed with what you have to say, Dr. Dossie. She'd like to know where she can get this kind of training if I've got it right. Have I got that right, Laurie? Well, basically you do. I thank you guys for taking my call. I've been involved in healing more on the holistic side, although I was an EMT firefighter years ago. My sister, on the other hand, is she's a cardiology nurse, um, you know, with the, strictly through the AMA, and I've been out of work to, to a lot of injuries. I've pulled myself back up together through a lot of painful situations, including herniated discs and such. Um, So I'm trying to figure out where's the best place to 
start back into the world. I don't have a medical degree to build on. I'd be starting from scratch. I'm in my early 50s. But I really have a lot of faith in vibration, music, um, you know, gardening, all these things. And I'm also a veteran and involved in their new uh, Qigong Tai Chi program. Um, They're also doing yoga at the VA. And so it's like, how do I help spread this kind of information? Um, When you mention about, you know, training nurses to coach, um, you know, I'd like to help spread information somehow as well as keep myself healthy while I'm doing it. Well, Lori, I have two suggestions. Uh, sure. If I were you, I would uh, look at the website of the American Holistic Nurses Association. If you Google the AHNA, American Holistic Nurses Association, you'll come up with it. The other uh, uh, source for information I would recommend is is something, the acronym is INCA, I-N-C-A, the International Nurse Coaches association. Uh, My wife, who is very well known in American nursing circles and holistic uh, health, Barbara, Barbara Dossi, uh, uh, and two colleagues uh, are heading up this this, uh, teaching and instructional program. So it's International Health Coaches Association. Take a look at it, and uh, I'm sure that you can uh, find some outlets that would be productive for you. And uh, you can also help spread the word that this, these options are out there. I can tell you that there are a lot of uh, nurses these days who are uh, looking to refurbish their careers after having been in conventional nursing at the bedside and want to get into a, a, a one-on-one approach with clients and uh, use their, their skills and their wisdom to uh, help people outside a hospital situation. And This is sort of the thrust of... Uh, INCA, the International Nurse Coaches Association, to help nurses uh, 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 polish up those skills to enable them to do that. I think it's a really a healthy direction in American healing. All that right. Makes, thank uh, you. That makes a lot of sense. Well, thank you so much. Thanks, Laurie. Thank you for calling, Laurie. Uh, now, Dr. Dossie, you cover music uh, in, in your book. Uh, you cover a lot of other things. I want to talk about the bugs in the music, but... Um, for everybody out there, just real quick, like, because we'll go back to the phone calls and, and get some more people in here. In in ordinary things, uh, the extraordinary healing power of ordinary things, you have 14 natural steps to health and happiness that you've set out. Um, you know, can you run through those real quick? Because we're going to run out of time, and, and I want our audience to know how powerful this new book of yours is. Well, we've. We've uh, talked about uh, dirt already. Uh, you know, in the book, I single out these things which uh, are cost-free. They they uh, can pay huge dividends. You know, the things that people usually tack on after they've done, uh, you know, surgery, medications, and everything, but they, they should be used at the outset in many things. Uh, I talk about the role of optimism in health, the role of forgiveness and forgetting uh, the role of taking on new experiences uh, in life, having to do with novelty and mystery, and even some risk-taking, things that get you out of habits, ruts, and routines. Uh, we now know that people who expose themselves to new experiences uh, have perkier immune systems that people who just, than people who just stay stuck in the same old daily routines. Uh, it isn't always clear why that's so, but it is. Uh, the ability to cry, the ability to shed tears results in a 
and an increase in immune activity in the body. Uh, I talk about also music, as you just mentioned. Uh, there are some incredible stories of people who have been comatose in coronary care units and neurological uh, intensive care units who, when certain types of music have been played to them, wake up. They come out of coma after, in some cases, having been in coma for weeks at a time. Uh, we need to be paying attention to these things. Some of them are mysterious. We don't know exactly how they work, but it would be wrong to ignore the power of healing in some of these simple things. Uh, I also talk about miracles. I'm fascinated by what we call miracles. I'm not sure how they happen, but we should not ignore them. There are too many of them. They suggest that uh, no disease is helpless, and uh, I think anyone who is having problem finding hope and optimism in the course of sickness uh, would be, be very well advised to pay attention to some of these clinical turnarounds that somehow happen just out of the blue. I also talk about the virtue of unhappiness. Everybody wants to be happy all the time in this culture. I think that's going against nature. We need to scrutinize those unhappy moments and try to see what nature and uh, the world and the universe are trying to uh, teach us during those moments. Uh, so these are the sorts of things. There are others also that uh, I talk about. The thing that I, I'm impressed with, uh, Eldon, is that 90% of us, 90% uh, of the time, do not need high-tech medicine. Whether or not we're going to live long and be healthy is going to depend overwhelmingly on whether we learn to pay attention to these simple sorts of things. Uh, they are powerful factors in uh, our health uh, uh, prospectus. And uh, I think it's just simply time that we called attention uh, to the inability of conventional high-tech medicine to meet us where we are and to answer our needs 90% of the time as human beings. Uh, We've been infatuated with high-tech medicine, expensive medicine uh, that is not as effective it needs, as it needs to be. It's not as uh, applicable as it needs to be. It's not as safe as it needs to I'm be. I'm afraid we're just running out of time, Dr. Dossi. <laughs> uh, we're going to have to have you back again, and perhaps we can get your wife back and talk about some of this nurse coaching. The books, The Extraordinary Eating Power of Ordinary Things, 14 Natural Steps to Health and Happiness, and Healing Words, that's what we've been talking about with author uh, Dr. Larry Dossie. Uh, I want to thank you all uh, for listening. We've come to the end of another hour of provocative enlightenment. I hope you've enjoyed the hour. I hope you find, uh, and will join us, I guess, next week, same time and same place. If you have comments on our show, do let us know. Until next week, then, remember, believing in yourself always matters. <laughs>